Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast with Dr. David O. Ogaga. Our text in Romans 14, 17. Romans 14, 17. Still the text we're dealing with. Again, it says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. Kingdom is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Um, we kind of stopped last week when we were dealing with the issue of conscience and we did mention precisely that a man with a dead conscience is exemplified from the book of Romans 19 to the last end. Romans 1. When a conscience is snared, God seems not to. It's not as if God doesn't communicate, but such people doesn't receive the communications of God. And we did mention as well that people like Hymenus and Alexander, the Philetus, they are typical example of men with seared conscience. When a conscience is seared, it means it's no longer responsive. It's like a wound that is healed. The place becomes thickened, so it's no longer sensitive. The skin is dead. Praise the Lord. Okay, so we want to continue today and I uh, still want to make a little bit of definition of the meat and drink as I gradually begin to move into uh, the righteousness of God, the joy of God, and the peace of God. And then we'll look into the issue of approval of God and acceptable to men. Amen. Okay, I would like us to turn very quickly to Matthew 12. Let's start reading tonight from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, I'm reading from verse 1 down to verse 8. Matthew 12 from verse 1 down to verse 8. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, that's cornfield, and his disciples were unhungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, their disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was unhungered, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest. Or the priest. Five. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priest in the tabernacle or temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what it meaneth, now take note of this, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. 
you will not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Hallelujah. Now, what has just happened here is a demonstration of men who needed to establish the meat and drink system of worship. Hallelujah. They were the custodians of the meat and drink people or system. Amen. Now they wanted the meat and drink to be properly established and observed. Now I want, to, I want you to begin to see how Christ began to move this because just as we're talking about conscience, remember we said everything they were doing was outward and it cannot touch man or the, the, the heart of man or the conscience of man just like the blood of Jesus can, the blood of goats could not. Amen. Now here now, they were still observing and properly putting them in place. So they tried to accuse Jesus. Why is your disciples or why are your disciples doing this? But what I want you to understand is the language of Jesus in that verse 7. But if you had known what it this minute, I will have mercy and no sacrifice, you will not have condemned the guiltless. Now, sacrifice in this place from the original Greek, Yeshua, not Yeshua. It's Y-U-S-I-A, Yeshua. Or Tushua, whatever it is. Means sacrifice. The act of the victim. Literally or figuratively sacrifice. Now what you don't need the word victim. The act or the victim. So what is the victim here? What's the sacrifice? What's the victim? It has to do with those animals that were being offered. They were the victims of the worship of Judaism. Is that okay? Come on, are we together? Okay. Now the next thing that follows is sacrifice. I mean, uh, mercy. Two words I want you to note. Sacrifice and what? Mercy. So, what is mercy? Mercy means compassion. Human or divine. Especially that which is active. Tenderness. Mercy. So now here... Jesus is saying, if only you understood what it means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Then you wouldn't have blamed those who seem to you have defiled the Sabbath. What is the meaning of this? I'm going to make you see there a little bit further. But here, Jesus was simply saying, the time has come. God is no longer interested in you keeping all those laws because he can bring you to the place of perfection. He's having mercy on humanity. Of that which they cannot do, he meets his own requirement as a lawgiver. He got the law, but mankind can't meet the requirement, so he was going to have mercy on mankind to still bring them to himself. By implication, what he was doing here was simply nullifying the whole system of Jewish worship. Just that simple statement was nullifying the entire system of the Jewish worship. God is not going to hold anybody accountable anymore based on the law. 
he will have mercy on men because they can't keep the law. Do you understand this? If you know what that minute, and if I when he used that word, he was quoting from Hosea 6 and verse number 6. That's where he was quoting from. If you truly understand what the Lord said in Hosea 6 verse 6, I will have mercy and no sacrifice. You won't blame these people. By implication, what seems to me that these guys have defied the law, Jesus was saying they already discharged and acquitted. They have not committed any crime. Because God is going to have mercy. And by implication, mercy was speaking. Christ himself was mercy personified because he was going to be the embodiment of the sacrifice that they were supposed to be offering. Are you still following this? All right. So, it's another word saying, because man cannot, those animals cannot bring man to sacrifice, the religious worship cannot bring man to perfection, God was going to offer his own sacrifice Having mercy on the people on their behalf was going to offer his own sacrifice. That was Jesus Christ. Okay. So here Christ was talking about the divine compassion of God on the weak. The weak creation as human being. Or for what they were going through in the hands of the oppressor. If somebody is weak, if somebody cannot do something, you know he's being oppressed. Now, one of the ways by which we are being oppressed was the law. And so... Paul will speak in the book of Galatians or Colossians as well and talking about the handwriting that was what? Against us. He nailed it to the cross. You remember that? Okay. He talks about the handwriting after spoiling principalities and powers. He took the handwriting that was against us and nailed it to the cross. So by implication, the law was oppressing us. How was it oppressing us? He would tell us that when you do this, you sin, but he doesn't have the power to stop you from sinning. So he was an oppressor. He was always there to accuse us. He doesn't give us the power to overcome that with which he was accusing us of. But every day presented before you. You can't make a step he tell you have sin. Anything you say you have sin. Okay, how do I stop sinning? He said, that's not my business. All I know, you have sin. And so Jesus took this and nailed it to the cross. He wants to have mercy on the people who cannot for themselves do what the Lord says they should do. Amen. Okay, go to Matthew chapter 9. Now, don't forget what we're dealing with. The kingdom is not meat and drink. It's a different life entirely. So, another way of saying that is the kingdom is not about sacrifices. Amen. There's some scripture I'm going to read today that are mind-blowing as far as I'm concerned. Matthew chapter 9. Let's look at it again. I'm looking at 10, verse 10 to verse 13. Matthew 9. 10 to 13. And it came to pass that Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eat you your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician. But they that are sick. Amen. He said, but go here and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and no sacrifice. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hallelujah. Now, if you look at this passage, 
for instance, the world has come for those that are sick, in quote. Actually, it means those are physically or morally sick. Disease, evil, giverously, you know, those who are miserable, all manner of things. That's what the word sickness means in this context. Right? Christ is saying, I came for those who are miserable. I came for those who cannot help themselves. I came for those who are confused in life. I didn't come for men who feel they are right with God. Okay. Now, who are those who are right with God now? If you look at that, who are those that spoke to him in Matthew chapter 12? The Pharisees. Who are those now asking the same question here? The Pharisees. Because they were the custodian of the law. But the key thing I want you to see is the emphasis of Jesus. I will have mercy and not what? Sacrifice. And I'll make you see why he keep on saying this. Now, when you look at the world, I didn't come for the righteous. The righteous here actually means by implication those who are innocent, those who are holy, absolutely or relatively, those who are just, those who are right. I didn't come for those who are holy. I didn't come for those who are innocent. When you say somebody is innocent, no crime. Okay. So the Pharisees, to them, because they were doing what they were doing, they were what? Holy. And the, 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 the proof of their holiness is just like the question, hey, come on here. See, your master is eating with these people and perhaps he didn't even know that they were sinners. And uh, not just that, they didn't even wash their hands too. You know, they have all the standard approval holiness. Remember that? Okay, so that's the point. Now, Jesus is saying, because you can't say he didn't come for righteous people. He is also righteous. Am I, am I correct? He is the righteousness of God. So why will he say he didn't come for righteous people? Because the righteousness that they have is the righteousness of the law, not of God. Did you get this? So don't get confused because he's righteous in the true sense. He came to make men righteous. But not in a legalistic manner. Not in the way of the meat and drink. Not in the way of the sacrifices. So when he said, I didn't come for the righteous, he's not trying to say, well, I have to be a sinner. That is what God is looking for. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's trying to say is, you have established your own righteousness. I didn't come for you. I come for men who feel of themselves they can do nothing. I came to help them to become the righteousness of God. Did you get that? Okay. All right. Now, so what I just know what Christ is talking about. He needed to make a people righteous. So why did he not call or come for the righteous? Like I'm trying to say. So who are these righteous people that he said he didn't come for? Just like we find, I'm going to give you an example. When he said I didn't come for the righteous, who are these people? Let's go to the book of First Timothy. First Timothy. I'm reading verse chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 16. This is a faithful saying, Paul is speaking, and worthy of acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So we have a chief in the Bible too. Verse 16. How be it? For this cause, I did what? 
I obtain mercy. That in me forth Jesus Christ might show forth all the long suffering for a pattern to them which you hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. I obtained mercy. Remember what he said? If you know what this means, I will have mercy and not what? Sacrifice. Now, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. What is it that made Paul to be such a sinner? Because in the true sense, Paul had begun to see himself different from who he used to be. While he was a Pharisee, he couldn't refer to himself as a sinner. Is that okay? He was a righteous man. Right? And he was pursuing the righteousness which he believed ruggedly and doggedly. That's why he was killing Christians. So, he can't refer to himself to be a sinner. But because the righteousness which he upheld was not God's righteousness, he finally got to know that all of those he was doing amounts to what? To nothing. Now, get this right tonight. What I'm trying to point out to you is you must come to a place in your life where it has to be God and God alone. Hallelujah. The controlling factor of life that you live must be God. That's where I'm bringing you into. Because, you see, we can establish our own righteousness just like the scribes and the Pharisees. We can put some standard to which we must observe to be able to prove that we are true worshippers of God. But worshipping God in spirit it's not necessarily a standard. The standard is God's standard. It's not your standard. It can be something you put in place. It has to be what God motivates people to do. Hallelujah. Okay. So here, he obtained mercy. Remember, he said it precisely. God said, it's not after sacrifice. It's after what? Mercy. And Paul is now saying, well, I come to realize in the truth sense, he came for sinners and obtained mercy. Okay. Now, how did that happen? Let's, in a way, try to define the righteousness of Paul before he obtained mercy. Let's look at the life of Paul. Go to Philippians chapter 3. The life of Paul before he obtained mercy. Hallelujah. Are we there? Let's start reading from verse 1. Remember when he said, I'm the chief of sinners and obtain mercy. You begin to see from the perspective in which he was speaking. Because if he was speaking as a Pharisee, he would never, never refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Is that alright? Okay. But let's see the life he lived before he obtained mercy. Psalm, I mean, Philippians 3. I'm reading from verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you. To me indeed it's not grievous. But for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Watch this. Dogs, evil workers, concision. Who are these people that's referring to? The same group of people. If you go to the book of Revelation, you're going to find that the Bible says those that are outside of the gate or the temple of the city are dogs and liars. Is that okay? Praise the Lord. 
Beware of dog, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Then it goes down to verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Now listen, he's making a different confession for who he used to be. Is that okay? And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now you can interpret this in two ways. Confident in what flesh is he talking about? Right? It's not talking about we have no confidence in our human motivation. He's talking about confidence. The law was referred to as a flesh. Because if you see, in Galatians, he said the same thing. Have you begun in the spirit and you want to end up in the flesh? What it means to say is, you started out believing Christ into this, in the spirit. Now some Judaizers came and they are taking you back to the law. So you can see that the law here, I mean the flesh is referring to what? The law. And he now said, we have no confidence in the flesh. Simply means, we have no confidence in the law. Okay. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man think it, that you can get it, that he had, wherefore he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Look at what he says now. These are his credentials for being in the flesh. Are you there now? Okay. That is why, let me, let me say this. When you read the Bible, Try as much as possible to find it in contents. Who is the person addressing? Is that okay? Find out who is addressing. Find out his thought pattern. That is why, you see, you can be talking about the flesh and you are thinking about the works of the flesh. No. In contents, you have nothing to do with what? The works of the flesh. There are three dimensions by which you can apply the word flesh. Flesh and blood can refer to just human being. Alright? And then flesh can refer to the Adamic life. And then flesh also refers to what? To the law. So when you read flesh, you should be able to find out the mind of the writer in terms of the context in what you are reading. Only then can you make meaning and make sense out of what you are reading. Is that okay? Alright. So he now says, second science, verse number five, second science, the eighth day, as a Jewish guy, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Are you there? Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law. What? Blameless. Hallelujah. Can you see why he said he's the chief of sinners? He has come to realize what he was doing amounts to nothing before God. But look at the credentials of this man. Hallelujah. Are we together? Okay. So, this is what basically religion can do. And this is what I'm saying when Jesus talked about, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, don't boast in you being a Pharisee. Don't boast in you having all the laws and keeping all the laws. Because God knows that this thing is not going to take humanity anywhere. There is another provision he's making. And he's going to have mercy on humanity. He will make his own sacrifice. And by implication, he's going to have mercy on those who cannot keep the laws. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So we find that as a chief of sinners, for instance... Though he being a keeper of the law, it was to the detriment of the grace and mercy of God. 
he will step in what is called righteousness, which is of the law. The meat and drink realm of worship. Is that okay? Hallelujah. Okay. Now, go to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. We're going to tie up the issue of the meat and drink and then come into the place of the righteousness of God. Acts 13, I'm looking at 38 to 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by what? The law of Moses. Now, this should make strong meaning and inspiration to you. The scripture says you are justified from how many things? Are you sure he said all? <laughs> now, if he says all, permit me to ask, what about the sins of your forefathers? Are you still justified from them? You are justified from all sins. All, not some. That's where I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Justify from all things. All. Anytime, anywhere. All. So the message that needs to be preached, which Paul was really preaching, was this simple word. You are justified from what? From all things. It's not by your own strength. It's not by the sacrifices that you can make. You don't have anything you can do to please God. But to believe in his own word, sacrifice. What he said here. Be known unto you, brethren and men, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things, not some. That's why I keep saying, don't you ever preach to me that I can suffer anything my father did. That is not Bible. Your justification includes all things, even what your great-great-grandfather did. Down through to Adam. You are justified from them. To them that believe. So the key thing again is what? Believe. By him that all that believed are justified from all things, not some. Hallelujah. What the Lord of Moses couldn't justify you from. Your believing into him justifies you from them. Are you there with me? So there is nothing on your account if you believe in Jesus. Can I hear an amen to that? Nothing. We may deal with it maybe next week. When he say, I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sins no more and I will write my laws where in their hearts. Nothing. You have no record as far as God is concerned in heaven, wherever. There is no record of whatever sins you have ever committed. No record. You can't find it anywhere. 
You can imagine it, but it's not on record. If you are suffering from it, not because it's on record, but because you take it to yourself. You, you, you buy into it in your mind and in your thought patterns. No record anywhere. The day God forgave you, he told the record. Everything that was written against you, he tore it. The day he saved you, the day he made you believe, that record was torn. Hallelujah. In fact, if there is anything you have right now, it's a certificate of acquaintance. It's like you go to court and the, and the judge will make a pronouncement. You are discharged and acquitted. Simple. You should be jumping out of the court rejoicing. And not going back to ask, what about, what, about, what about that sin that I committed? What about that offense I committed? What about what the lawyer was trying to say? Again? Not true, I did it before. The Lord said, but I know you did it, but I forgave you. He said, but what about the other one? Can you imagine the thing we do? Hallelujah. You are justified from everything that you have been accountable for in life. Present, past, future, if you will. There is nothing you can do to appease God more than what the sacrifice of Jesus has provided for. Nothing. Are you still there with me? The kingdom is not what? Meat and drink. It has nothing to do with sacrifices. No, not about that. Hallelujah. Okay, let's move on. So you see the credentials of Paul. Let's get now to Matthew chapter 5. I'm coming to some things I want to be reading. If I may use the word, my favorite translation now. Matthew chapter 5, let's look at verse 20. And then... Uh, Okay, you can read from verse 19, but let me just read 20 from the King James. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? It means the Pharisees had a righteousness. Is that all right? But he said, your righteousness must exceed theirs. How can your righteousness exceed their own? If this, like, you have to keep the law, for instance. You know how many laws they were supposed to keep? All the intricacies of those things. And he said, you got to keep them. And they were keeping those things. You go to wash hands, you don't eat this, you don't do this on the side. But all of those things, and he said, hey, if your own righteousness go to... If you have to enter the kingdom, your righteousness must do what? Exceed their own. Can you imagine what you have to go through? Rigorous work. Okay, let me read it from the message translation. I'm going to read from verse 19, from the message translation. Trivialize even the smallest item, verse 19, in God's law. And you will only have trivialized yourself. In other words, if you don't keep the law, you see what's going to happen to you. If you play down the law, the law will get hold of you. Is that okay? And he says, but take it seriously. Show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. But verse 20 says, unless you do far better than the Pharisees in their matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Get this again. 
unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living. So, righteousness is what? Right living. That's what I want to define. Is that okay? He said, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom of God. So then, what is right living? Which is righteousness. I really want to bring it down so that we can see. What is right living? What then is the righteousness of God? The, the, the right living so he tended. Because God is not saying, you need to have a right living that exceeded out of the scribes and the Pharisees. That we know how they were living. Okay, now perhaps washing the, the hands before food and not Sabbath or whatever, all of those things to them is right living. Is that okay? But what is God's own right living? Okay, let's get now to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And I'll start reading from verse 27. I'm going to read from the two translations, King James and then the message. Matthew 6, are we together? 27. Which of you taking thought can add one cubic unto his stature? And why take a thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the feet, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or where we shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. And all these things shall be what? Added unto you. So now we find that there is the, the Pharisee type of righteousness or right living. And there is God's type of righteousness or right living. Does it make sense? Hallelujah. God have a standard for right living. And the Pharisees also have a standard for what? For right living. Now he's saying your right living must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In so doing, you can enter into what? The kingdom of God. Okay. Now, let me bring it down from a simpler translation. I'm reading again from verse 27. My two six from the message translation. Has anyone by fusing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? In other words, you just get worried. Look at the mirror. Why am I like this? I would like to get tall. Oh, come on. Get tall, get tall, something like that. Has that happened that then you become taller than the way it is? Okay. All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashion, walk out into the fields and look at the Wildflowers. They never prime, they never prime nor sharp. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The ten best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. Verse 30. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, 
most of which are never even seen. Don't you think he attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. Can I hear amen? Do not be so preoccupied with getting so much so you can respond to God's giving. Now, I want you to catch this. You are preoccupied with getting and so you are not responding to God giving. So, what was supposed to be your response? Receiving and not trying to get. God is giving but you are working to get. So, he said because you are so occupied, you are not responding to God's giving. Are you there with me? Okay. Verse 32. People who don't know God and the way he walks fuse over these things. But you know about God and how he works. Steep yourself, verse 33, in, steep your life in God's reality. Begin to follow it. God's initiative, God's provisions. Three things. Righteousness of God now. Steep yourself or your life in God's reality. Know who God is. God's initiative. He initiates the action. He primes you. Hallelujah. God's provisions. Are you listening to me? See, the scripture says, the law ordered the footstep of the righteous. By implication, he can lead you to the place of success. He can lead you to the place of plenty. But steep yourself in him. Steep your life in him. Give your life to him. So that you can be able to respond to his giving. So that he can lead you to the place of abundance in life. He came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Don't you know that? Praise the living God. So don't worry about missing out. You will find all your everyday human concern be met. Oh, hallelujah. Steep yourself in him. Don't, don't, don't ever be confused or start thinking you are going to miss out if you don't struggle so hard. <laughs> it is better to walk in the favor of God than to walk in human labor. Amen? Steep your life in God's reality. Know him. God's initiative, that with God's, you know, he starts things for you. When he says the author and the finisher of your faith, it means he begins your faith and he will also end your faith. He initiates your faith. Let's try to trust God a little bit. We are too preoccupied with our human effort to succeed in life. Amen? And in so doing, it's just like being preoccupied to please God by keeping the laws. We are doing the same thing on the other side. In terms of success, we are observing laws outside of God's initiative, which has to do with his righteousness. So what he's saying is, in serving God, it has to do with his initiatives. Look what he said. What can we do to do the works of God? In the book of John. He said, this is the work of God. One, that you may believe what? In his own son. 
that he has sent. Believe in Christ. That is the work God expects you. And if you believe in him, he's going to lead you to do that which is right in the sight of God. So the issue of righteousness becomes so simple because he will be the one to initiate what you will do that God will accept. Hallelujah. Are you there? Verse 34. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever. And have times, have things come up when the time comes. Okay. Now, I want to read two scriptures and you see how the Israelites missed out because of what they believed to be the righteousness of God. You know, men are still arguing it today. There are still a lot of debaters too. What God intends to do with Israel, how God wants to build up a temple, you know. American brothers, brethren, they are pushing so hard on how to build a temple in Jerusalem and things like that. But let's see how they miss her because who are you building this temple for? The Christ that was sent was not accepted even till tomorrow. The true Jewish man don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't still believe. So who are you building the temple for? It's like resurrecting the Leviticus order. Amen. But anyway, let's look at something uh, in the book of Romans. And I'm going to read from the, uh, the message still. Romans chapter 9. I'm reading from 30 to 33. And I'm going to chapter 10 as well. To me, it's an interesting passage. So we see Israel in terms of keeping on righteousness and doing all the hard works. They were doing all of this to do what? To please God. Is that, not, is that not true? Everything they were doing. Instead of keeping the laws. They were all just trying. To please God. But unknown to them that even in trying to keep the law. The way they were going. That thing was keeping them away from God. That's the unfortunate thing. Okay. Look at Romans 9. Are we together? I'm reading from verse 30. How can we sum up this? This whole issue we're talking about. How can we sum it up? What's the summary? All those people who don't seem interested in what God was doing actually embrace what God was doing as it strengthened out their lives. Now watch it again. All those people who didn't seem interested in what God was doing actually embrace what God was doing as it strengthened out their lives. Now watch this. What is he saying? Talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles who do not have the law Okay? And there was nothing they were trying to do. But when the word came, they simply accepted the word. But Israel, instead of accepting the word, they were still struggling to keep what they seemed to have before. Are you getting the picture? So he now said, those who didn't seem to be interested in what God was doing, actually embraced what God was doing as he strengthened out their lives. Now I want you to see the key he straightened out their life. He gave them a balanced life as far as he is concerned. In other words, the Gentiles came to the place of pleasing God while the Jews were still struggling to do what? To please God. Okay. The next verse says, verse 31. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, which is the law, they missed out. Amen? Verse 32. 
How could they mix? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. Hallelujah. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their good projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them like a huge rock in the middle of the road. Oh, I like this. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling on the ground, if you will. Now, just like this. They were so absorbed in what they were doing by themselves. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them. You can be too busy religiously and then you miss out on God. That even when he's speaking, you can't hear. Hmm? When he's speaking, you can't hear. You can be too busy. Religiously, so that and all of those things you are putting together for him is to please him. But here he is standing before you to instruct you on which way to go. His initiatives. But you don't see him. You can't even hear him because you are too busy. This is exactly what happened to Israel. They were so occupied with keeping every jot and every title of the law that even the lawgiver himself was standing before them but they won't see him. Hallelujah. Now, what are we trying to say? Coming into the kingdom is to be able to see him. Don't you forget. The more you behold him, the more you become like him. Your life should be guided on a daily basis by the spirit of the Lord. That's kingdom lifestyle. Amen? Okay. Time is almost running. Go down to chapter 10. Let me jump this. Chapter 10. Let's look at verse 1 to 13. Israel reduced to religion. That's the way it is titled in the message translation. Israel reduced to religion. Terrible. Are we there? Chapter 10. And I'm reading from verse 1. Believe me, friends. All I want for Israel is what is best for Israel. Salvation, nothing else. Hallelujah. I want it with all my heart and pray to God for it all the time. Verse 2. I readily admit that the Jews are impressively energetic regarding God. But they are doing everything exactly backward. They are very energetic. Very committed. But they are doing everything what? Backward. God has a kind of forward movement. He has initiative. He brings all things new. He makes all things new. But these guys are stuck with the old life. And we can find that today in Christianity. We are not prepared to see what God is saying. He speaks to people about message with kingdom. The best they can do for you is to tie you up with Jehovah's witness. Are you getting what I'm talking about? That is all they can do. They can't see light in what you're saying. But they are zealous talking about revival, talking about this, talking about that. They are doing things backward. They are not moving forward. They are not seeing light. Are 
I got to call today from Malaysia and what, what God is doing there through what we deposited. He seed our son. Two calls. And I'm just glad. Very happy. Praise the Lord. They are so energetic doing everything backwards instead of going forward. Instead of seeing light. Now people are still dying every day if I may use the word. By the kind of messages they receive. How your father is killing you, your grandfather is killing you. Now what we have today more is what you call prophetic or prophetic night, prophetic this. And every time you go there, you get more confused. Listen to me. Christ is the centrality of the gospel. You go to any meeting, you receive any word, and there is no Christ in it, leave it there. Revelation 9, 19, the Bible tells us, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So there is no way somebody gives you a prophecy and Christ is not revealed and you are dying because of that. You're wasting your time. You are walking backward and not forward. Hallelujah. Verse 3. They don't seem to realize that this comprehensive setting things right, that is salvation, is God's business. Oh my God. And not a most flourishing Business it is. Oh my God. Listen to this. They don't seem to realize that this comprehensive setting things right, that is salvation, is God's own business. And he says it's the most flourishing business right now. What You see, can you see why now we get the meaning right when Jesus said, I must be after my father's business. What is it? The salvation of all men. That's the real business. And the scripture is saying the business is flourishing. But men are still tied to what cannot bring life. Hallelujah. Right across the street, they set up their own salvation shops and noisily hog their ways. I like that. And so every pool, there's a shop. What did the Bible call them? Salvation shops. <laughs> and some of you must have been shopping around too. Can you look at It's right there. Salvation business, okay? But yeah, it's a Israel set up their own shops. And that rightly describes what we see today. There's nothing wrong because Paul will say again, some preach Christ out of envy, some preach him out of jealousy, some preach him in pretense. Whichever way Christ is being preached. I think that's what we're seeing today. They don't realize that putting this right is a major business, which is God's salvation business. And the Bible says, right across the street, they set up their own salvation shops and noisily hawk their wares. This reminds me of men putting on horn speakers. Hmm? They noisily hawk their wares. And then banners all over the place. We are noisily then going around the street. Yes, we are hawking our words. We always think that our doctrine is better. Am I right? It's not come to Jesus. It's come to my church. That's the emphasis. The big church. The big stickers. The big titles. The best of logos. Noisily hawk their words. 
salvation shops. Hallelujah. He said, after all these years of refusing to really deal with God on his terms, insisting instead on making their own deals, they have nothing to show for it. Instead of allying God and coming to God in his time, what is God's terms? It's simply the spirit of Christ. Instead of coming to God in his terms, they noisily set up their own salvation shops, noisily hawking their own ways all over the place. Instead of coming to terms with God's salvation deals which has put in place. And what am I talking about? God's salvation business which is put in place is the ultimate of righteousness which is Christ. Hallelujah. Okay, let's go to verse 4. Their earlier revelation was intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah. Who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it? I want you to know that. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discover it's not easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But, now I want you to look at this portion. It's also very uh, interesting. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law right before God soon discovered it's not easy and that is true that is why religion is the hardest thing you can ever get yourself engaged in now he went further to say but every detail of life regulated by fine print I've already been saying it I believe in the Bible, I read the Bible I teach from the Bible but the truth is God did not intend the Bible to be what controls your life Do you understand what I'm saying? If it was so, get it right. What I mean is, you have to get the revelation of the written letter. There has to be an understanding of what you are reading. Do you know families can break apart and families have even broken apart simply because of the Bible? And yet the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. Am I right? So why do we find the confusion? Because people can't see the spirit of the letter. They use the letter. And so here he's talking about every detail of life regulated by fine print, printed page. It says a hard thing to do. Moses says so. It's about trusting God to shape the right living in us. It's a different story. Can I hear an amen to that? No precarious climb up to heaven to recruit the Messiah. No dangerous descent into hell to rescue the Messiah. So what is like what Moses saying? The word that saves is right there or right here. As near as a tongue in your mouth, as close as a heart in your chest. It is a word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. I want you to look into that. It is the word of faith that welcomes God. To go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Can I hear an amen to that? Say the following word to God. Jesus is my master. Now he's telling you what to say. What welcomes God? To do works on your behalf. Jesus is my master. You see, as you say that, embrace him with your body, with your soul. 
God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. By simply saying that word, God begins to do the same thing for you. Hallelujah. That is it. You are not doing anything. You are simply calling out to God. Trusting him to do it for you. That is salvation. Very simple. With your whole being, you embrace God setting things right. And then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between me and him. He's saying this is what you should say. Hallelujah. You believe it, then confess it. What did he say? You say, God has set everything right between him and me. Therefore, there is no problem. I am the righteousness of God in who? In Christ. Say it loud. That's what he's saying. He said, when you confess this, God will be welcome to work on your behalf. And that's salvation we're talking about. Praise the living God. Final scripture here, verse 11 says, Scriptures reassures us, no one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. Can I hear an amen to that? It's exactly the same, no matter what a person's religious background may be. The same God for all of us, acting the same incredibly generous way to everyone who calls out for help. Everyone who calls help, God gets what? So everything has to do with your confession. It's not what you do. My friend, I want you to understand tonight. God's kingdom is not about meat and drink. In other words, it's not about sacrifices. It's not about religious obligations and observations. It's simply you calling on Jesus. It's simply knowing that he has put things right between you and himself. God is not angry with you. God will not be angry with you. Because of Jesus. He said he set everything right between me and himself. So it's not what you do that will set things right. In other words, come to his terms and accept what he has done, then salvation is what? Guaranteed. And I believe this salvation will run across into our health issues, into our financial issues, into our marital issues. Simply accepting him in his terms, we have freedom in all of these areas. God bless you. For further information and message order, please call plus 234-803-4810869. Or you can visit our website at www.gkai.net. God bless you.